Hey Cole, I hope you're ready for a cautionary tale today, because the moral of this week's movie is never answer a call from your ex at three in the morning. I mean, I'm already aware of that, but I do feel like there's a lot of people out there who need that lesson. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. Sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us this week. And so, funny enough, the last time I answered a call from my ex at around three in the morning was um, when I had to get him out of jail. True story. Uh, It was six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I know because I was there. Yeah. Happy Mardi Gras. Yeah, so I guess that's probably I already that's how I learned that lesson the hard way. Also, don't call people at three in the morning. No, if unless you're dead or there's a spider to kill. Uh it was five, <laughs> not three. I am not unreasonable. <laughs> so um, okay. That's basically how this movie starts off. I am talking this week about a foreign film, maybe the first foreign film, not counting Canada, because whatever, that I've done on this podcast. No, you did um, uh, Kitty, 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 Kitty. Oh, the Japanese one. What was that called again? Uh, The um, Audition. Yes. Yes. So I guess this is the second foreign film. It is a 2017 film. The English title of it is Rift. And the Icelandic title, because it is Icelandic, oh geez, is Rokur. Oh, that okay. It's not that bad. Yeah, as far as Icelandic goes, that's pretty mild. Yeah, the so obviously I'm like, as I've talked about before, a huge language buff, and I do pretty well with foreign languages just because I have a lot of exposure to various different ones. Icelandic though is like a whole separate circus of language, and it was interesting for me i don't even know if i'm gonna try to pronounce the actors in this movie because as i showed cole like there are legitimately characters that i'm like i don't even know what that sounds like and i tried to plug it into google translate and i don't think google translate knows either because it was giving me all sorts of weirdness but it's whatever it's a very cool sounding language and i hear it's incredibly difficult to learn but i will say the director of it is erlinger thoridson he also wrote it and the the main characters, I'll just say their characters' names because they're a lot easier. It's it's uh this well they're exes, but it's Gunnar. Although in Icelandic it's Gunnar, but I don't really want to be that person. Please don't be that person. <laughs> David Sedaris literally has an entire story written about like people who affect a really strong accent when they're saying something in a different language and how pretentious he thinks it is. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. It just it sounds it sounds bad. And we would say Gunner in English, assuredly. And then the other guy, his name is Einar, which doesn't really have an English equivalent, and that's kind of how you say it either way. So So I'm excited about this because it is an Icelandic film, and honestly, I watch a lot, lot of foreign films. And this is, I think, the first Icelandic film I've ever seen. So I was kind of excited to see what it was like, how it was shot. 
it does remind me a lot of other European styles of films, and I'll talk about that in a second, just the the way that it's shot, the way that it's paced. But the other reason that I was excited about this movie that I had never heard of before I, well, looked it up and saw it, I guess, is because it is an LGBTQ plus whatever movie, which I thought was interesting because you don't really find a lot of them, especially not in the horror genre. And the ones you do find, well, you so they exist. They do exist. We've all seen them. However, this is sort of an LGBT film that is just kind of about people. The main characters just happen to be a gay couple. And it's normally when you see them, it's literally like a movie about like a clan of shirtless vampires or like overly sexualized male witches who conjure dark forces with their abs. You can say Dante's Cove. It's okay. <laughs> it can't hurt you here. Wait, is Dante's Cove supernatural? Yeah. Oh, I never saw it. I know exactly of it. But there's also this one that always comes up if you search like uh, gay and lesbian horror that's, I think it's like these like shirtless male vampires. I mean, it, yeah. Oh boy. I will not never watch one of those movies and never do it with podcast unless it, unless it looks like it's like a real fucking funny thing to make fun of. But this is, I mean, literally the two main characters in this are exes and obviously like the discussion of sort of being gay comes up a little bit because, I mean, how could it not? It's not like you can just ignore it, but it comes up in a very natural way. And it instead of being like a focal point of the plot, it's just kind of like part of character development in who they are because, I don't know, despite what some people say, like being gay does affect who you are. It's it's an experience, and it affects you probably every day of your life. So, anyway, enough about that. But so I wanted, I was excited because it was just this really kind of cool horror movie that happens to also be an LGBT movie, and I think it's important to to kind of diversify and talk about different movies. Because originally, when I was going to do this week's episode, I wanted to kind of get back to an older one because I had done some more modern ones. But then I found this, and I thought it looked like more fun to do. So I did it. Anyway, I'm going to read, well, I'm going to read the real blurb, but also the fake blurb. I've heard the fake blurb already. It's real good. I'm so excited. Yes. So the fake blurb, which I'll say, and I call it the fake blurb because it's not like when you go on a streaming service, by the way, this is available on Amazon Prime if you want to watch it. The Amazon Prime blurb is like a normal movie blurb. If you go on the IMDb, the synopsis blurb of this is... Two men in a secluded cabin are haunted by their dead relationship. And for some reason, that made me laugh. Oh, boy. It's rough. So, yeah. I thought that that was a hysterical synopsis. And I'm sure everyone out there who's haunted by their dead relationships can, I don't know, understand. Yikes. Anyways, the real synopsis of this, which makes it sound much more interesting, is... When Gunnar receives a distraught phone call from his ex, he drives up to a secluded cabin to see him. He discovers that there's more going on than he imagined. Someone seems to be lurking outside. And then it says, dot, 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 this Hitchcockian thriller is hard-boiled and award-winning. I don't 100% know what hard-boiled means, but... All I heard is cock and hard. (laughs) It is very Hitchcockian. That's exactly how I would describe it. I I don't know what that means. Like... Akin to Hitchcock's horror, which has a certain vibe to it, which is usually like a slow build psychological horror, I guess. Okay. 
I was about to say, for those of you listening at home who couldn't see, I rolled the fuck out of my eyes when the response to I don't know what Hitchcockian horror was akin to Hitchcock's horror. Well, so Hitchcock is known for a lot of sort of psychological tools in his horror, music, slow build music, and... Just a lot of sort of like this eerie atmosphere that very, very slowly builds. He also, a lot of times, his movies, I mean, some of them do, but his movies don't have the sort of deliberate kind of like crescendos that American films have. And American films, especially horror films, are kind of known for that right now. The formula, I would say, for an American horror film is like lead up, crescendo, and then what well, I don't know what you call it after that. Um, oh my God, what's the term I'm trying to think of? Climax? Now, I guess the climax is kind of what I mean by crescendo. It like finishes in the climax and then the after part. Resolution, I guess you could call Resolution. it. Resolution. And European movies in general do not follow that formula. A lot of times European movies are much more like a steady burn with like little peaks every now and then. And that's kind of like what I've learned from watching a whole bunch of foreign films is like they'll have these big moments, but a lot of it is this like much more sort of slowness to them. <laughs> You're frowning because you don't like slow movies. Oh, I will also point out this movie is two hours long. I'm not sure that you would watch this. Nope. <laughs> but it was actually good. There was a point when I was watching it that I was like, I want to like this, but I don't think I do. But then it picked up and the creepiness, like the creepiness started. And I was like, okay, I think I do like this. And then the ending happened. And I was like, did I like this? And so let's talk about it. <laughs> Interesting to point out as well. This movie was filmed on location in Iceland over the course of 15 days. Oh, wow. That is quick. That is super quick for reference. When I was an extra in Green Lantern, our one scene that was like two minutes of the movie took 10 days. <sighs> and that movie was terrible. That was the best part. So. You're the best part of everything <laughs> in my eyes. Yeah. If you want to know where my cameo in Green Lantern is, just ask. I have one second of screen time, folks. Okay, so let's just get into this movie. Obviously, I'm not summarizing an entire two-hour movie, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it. It's interesting, and this movie is like a psychological horror, but it's also like maybe a ghost story, but is it a ghost story? But it's also kind of like an old creepy man murderer story, but is it that either? I don't know. Who knows? I've read, I read a couple reviews of this movie online just to see what other people are thinking about it, and there's no real consensus. And I think the best thing I read about it, which I didn't write down, so I'm just kind of paraphrasing, was that this... Rift is a movie not to be unraveled, but just to be accepted and taken in. It just sounds so pretentious. I know, but that's what that's kind of how people are about foreign films sometimes. But that the, the thing is, is that a lot of psychological horror is like that. You just have to kind of take it for what it is. And the, que the whole point is it makes you think and question and be like, well, what is going on here? Sounds great. Anyway. The story is, it has its creepy moments. I'm going to talk to you about kind of some of the creepy moments in here, and you're going to be like, whoa, nope. That must mean there's spiders. There are no spiders. There's no spiders in Iceland. Nothing lives up there. Oh, my God. Can we move? No. My guess is there are, but, like, to be honest, it's 
so Iceland looks super beautiful. I showed you when like a little part of it. I mean, it's just like, honestly, it's like nature and like glaciers and like, I, I don't know. It looked really nice up there. Very remote. I'll say that. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. But they honestly, though, they, they eat shit like fermented fish and like stuff like that all day long. Okay. I don't know about fermented. I, I can get into like smoked fish and stuff like that. I like that kind of stuff. But like if you're like sawing off pieces of fermented shark and stuff, that just sounds like it's going to be real fishy. Okay, so let's get into this because I have a good amount to go through and I don't want to take all day. So movie opens up and we see the main character, Gunner. He's bleeding from his head and his face and he's kind of alone in the wilderness. And there's this narration where it's like, him thinking back, talking to Einar, his ex, and there's kind of this weird thing where they're talking about breaking up and maybe suicide. It's not that it's not that heavy, but then it flashes back to like modern times. And Gunnar is in bed with another guy who is not important in this movie, other than he's like Gunnar's current boyfriend. 3 a.m. happens, he gets a call, and it's from Einar. The message, it's, he doesn't answer it, I think. He, like, notices that he had this call, so he listens to it, and it's a message. And it's, like, super weird and cryptic. And he's talking about how, like, every time I'm in Roker, which is means Rift. It's the title of the movie. But it's also, like, a place in Iceland. He's like, every time I'm in Roker, I never feel like I'm alone. Which is weird. So, That's creepy. Yeah. But then what's also kind of weird is, so Gunnar immediately gets up, gets dressed, and is, like, leaving the house at three in the morning and his boyfriend is like where are you going and Gunnar's like don't worry about it i'll call you later and the new boyfriend is like okay i feel like that's not how people act but whatever so that's like the setup to this movie so he heads off and goes to like this remote country house in remote iceland and then the opening credits roll so i guess they just needed to get him out there let's be clear If you told me, hey, my ex called, I need to go make sure they're okay in a romantic remote country house, I'd be like, okay, let me pack a bag. I I feel like you would be like, "Mm -hmm. no, let me pack a bag (laughs) and a box cutter. Oh, God. Yeah. So. Okay, so he's driving out to the country, right? The also so the music in this is very it's also very similar to like as I said before how Hitchcock uses music, meaning there's it's not songs with lyrics. It's all sort of orchestral building, a lot of string work to sort of like highlight moments in the film and a lot to like kind of build tension. And I like that in movies. Yeah. Okay. So Gunnar ultimately makes it out there. And at first, he can't find Einar. Like, he thinks he's, like, not there. The house seems kind of empty. It's a really cute house, but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody else around. And then finally, he sees Einar outside sitting on a rock. And Einar is like, what are you doing here? Why did you come out here? And, oh, that's awkward. <laughs> yeah. And Gunnar was like, "Um, you called me? And so I was worried. And Einar kind of seems to, like, not really 100% remember the call, but then he kind of does. But then he's like, oh, well, you didn't have to come out here. I was drunk. So then Gunnar is like, well, I'm going to stay the night to make sure everything's okay. So he calls his boyfriend and is like, I think I'm just going to stay the night out here to make sure everything's okay. And his boyfriend is like, okay, no problem. Bye. Oh, 
Actually, his boyfriend is like, okay, I miss you. And Gunner's response is, okay, bye. <laughs> oh, girl. Girl, that would not go over well with me. Let's just make that clear in case you find yourself this in this situation in the future. I don't think that that would go over well with anyone necessarily. Oh, it's so funny because it. So in the middle of the room, they wake up to somebody like rattling on the door, like sounding like they're trying to get in. And like, I'm just like, well, it's probably Gunner's boyfriend because that's what I would have fucking done. I would have been like, okay, bye. Nope. Getting in my car right now. (laughs) Okay, bye. Okay, bye for now. (laughs) See you soon. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So anyways, they wake up in the middle of the night and they hear this person, like they hear the front door rattling like somebody's trying to get into it. And then they both go into the sort of like living room area and it stops and they're both like looking at each other like, what the fuck? Because I mean, this place is like pitch black country, like nothing going on. And then all of a sudden they hear these super loud boom, boom, boom knocks on the door. Fuck no. Yeah. It's very The Strangers, and I, you are well aware that that movie, I've seen it like 10 times, and it still freaks me out. Uh, yeah. So then they're looking at each other like, what the actual fuck is happening right now? And then they hear another set of knocks, and then Gunnar goes to open the door like a crazy person. And so <sighs> he flings the door open, and nobody's there. Yeah. So that's kind of like the setup of the movie. And I was like, okay, I think this movie is going to be pretty good. The problem is that's the only creepy thing that happens probably for the next like 30 to 40 minutes. But there is a lot of like atmospheric tension building. Okay. So the movie kind of continues for a while. And they end up going to this abandoned building. I don't 100% know why they go there. But they they kind of hear some creepy things. And they hear this like clicking noise. And... Then they think they hear the sound of what they think they hear. It sounds like somebody being like attacked. Like they hear this clicking. Then they sound. They hear somebody being attacked, and they're like hiding in this room upstairs. And when they go out, like they can't find anybody. Like nobody was there. So they're like, okay, well that's weird. And then Einar tells Gunnar the story of his imaginary friend, whose name was Lemoy, and how when he was a kid he had this imaginary friend who like led him out to the lava fields, which are in Iceland like fields created by Lava Rock, and they have these, like, fissures, which I believe are also called Roker, which is, I think, where the movie gets the name from. But, so they have these fissures, and they basically are talking about how, like, sometimes, like, livestock and stuff would go into those fissures to escape, like, the cold and, like, not be able to figure out how to get back out and would, like, die down there and stuff like that. Anyways, there's kind of a story about it. But that happens. Okay, so Gunner is, like, Weird shit's happening out here. And he wants to know, like, who's been knocking on the door. So he goes and finds this girl's farm that's, like, close by. And he's, like, talking to her about, like, is there anything weird happening? And she's kind of like, well, first of all, she's like, who are you? Because she knows who owns that house. And it's Einar's family. And so she's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Einar's friend. And she's like, okay. But she's like, you know, I've been up there checking to try to figure out, to try to see, like, who's up there. And, like, nobody ever answers the door there. And he's like, well, Einar's been here. And I'll point out, at this point in the movie, I'm like, I think I've figured this movie out. And I'm pretty sure that Einar is dead. And he's a ghost. Yeah. And that is one theory behind this movie. 
but it's never really confirmed. And I'm not 100% sure that that's actually true. And I'll tell you about it a little bit because I will tell you how this movie ends. Okay. But if it was just 100% that Einar is just dead and stuff like that, if it was done well, I would have been okay with it. But I figured it out early enough in the movie that I was like, this is going to annoy me a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, at another point, while trying to figure out, like, while looking around, he goes to another farmhouse because the girl who was, like, checking up on the houses is, like, you could try this other farmhouse that's near the cabin because I used to hear stories about how, like, young guys would go there to work as farmhands and would always end up leaving early saying that creepy shit happened there. So he goes to this farmhouse and he's and like he knocks on the door and nobody answers. He goes around the back and he looks in the window and there's this weird like shrine with like a cutout magazine page of a shirtless guy. And so he's like, well, this is kind of weird. So he just walks away and then it flashes to like a pair of eyes in a window of an old man. And he's making these grunting sounds. And it kind of seems like he's like either jerking off or like really upset about something. Oh, boy. Sometimes those things go hand in hand. Yeah. Just like a, a hate-filled jerk section. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's disturbing, but it was supposed to be. Okay. So other stuff happens, but I'm gonna get to the point where this was one of the best scenes in the movie, but also like one of the absolute creepiest scenes in the movie. I'm so ready. So Gunnar wakes up in the middle of the night and Einar is gone. And he's like, What the fuck? Where did he go? So he gets up and he finds Einar's computer on the table. So And the computer's open, and he finds this video, and he plays the video. And the video starts with Einar looking at the camera, and it's in, like, a night vision green filter. And Einar is, like, walking around the house with this camera, and then he, like, pans over to the bedroom, and Gunnar sees himself sleeping, like Einar had gotten up in the middle of the night and made this thing. So it pans over to him sleeping, and then it pans out, and then he walks out of the house, and then... He walks into that other abandoned house, like, across the field, and then he goes up into a room, he sets the sets the camera down, and then he stands in front of the camera, and you can only see him from, like, the ankles down, and it stays there for a few seconds, and then another set of feet walk from the other side and stand there, and then you hear that same clicking noise that they heard in that building before, and then all of a sudden, a hand reaches out and grabs the camera, and the video stops. Oh, that's very creepy. Oh. Oh, no. So then Gunnar's like, this is a weird fucking video. Let me watch this again. So then Gunnar watches it again. And when it gets to the part of him sleeping, he's like, wait a second. And he stops it and he plays it slower. And in the part of him sleeping with Einar filming it, you see a hand reaching out from under the bed that slowly retracts when he pauses the video. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Nope. So then Gunnar is like, I'm going to go check under the bed. No, Gunner should be like, I'm going to go back to my boyfriend. If I were Gunner, I'd be like, I'm going to go back to Reykjavik because this is not happening anymore. This has been a fun stay, but I have to leave. Anyway, so he ends up getting, so he goes to look under the bed. It's really suspenseful. And the scene is so well done. I mean, it freaked me the fuck out. He goes to look under the bed. And ultimately the lady that he had talked to before, she kind of like, comes in and spooks him a little bit from behind and is like, I heard screaming from the house. And he's like, "Mm, nobody's screaming. So then he's like, I can't find Einar. So they kind of go to drive to look for Einar. And in the car, she's like, when's the last time you saw him? And he was like the other day. And she's like, well, I mean, I've been out to that house multiple times to check for him and I have not seen him. And this is when I was like, okay, they're building up to be like, he's dead. But that didn't really go that way. Gunnar got mad and got out of the car 
And then he goes kind of like it's so late that it kind of turns into morning and he goes back to that abandoned house. There's some really creepy stuff that happens, but ultimately the sort of climax of that scene is he ends up hiding in a closet because the weird farmer guy comes in. And then while he's in the closet, he hears this small child's voice being like, hello, hello, where are you? I'm lost. And the guy is like, who are you? And the voice is like, my name is Limoy. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's, the kid is like, help me, help me. I woke up here. And so he follows the voice into an upstairs room. And there's this like pile of like bags and blankets in the corner. And the voice is coming from the pile. Oh boy. And he walks closer to it. And then all of a sudden, like the pile, like all the black, the blankets and stuff like go up in the air and he falls back and hits his head and kind of passes out this is weird (laughs) yeah so when he wakes up weirdly enough he sees einar in the corner of the room making the phone call and leaving the message that he heard in the beginning of the movie which is weird very but then he can't then he then einar disappears so then he goes back to the lava fields and he is like goes up to one of those little like crags and he sees Einar in the bottom of it laying down. So he goes down there and finds Einar and Einar's head has been bashed in with a rock and he's dead. Then the farmer comes up from behind him and he's got a box cutter and he keeps opening and closing it, making that clicking sound. Oh. And the farmer starts to slash him with the box cutter, cuts his hands and stuff. But then like the farmer like freaks out for some reason and runs away. And the guy is like, Jesus Christ, that was insane. And he's kind of like regaining his composure a little bit. And then the farmer runs back up to him with a rock and hits him over the head. It, just like he did with Einar. But it doesn't kill him. It, pa- it passed out. He It made him pass out. But then he woke up and he's bleeding from the head, which is how the movie opened. Bleeding from the head and stuff like that. Yeah. And he gets out of the crag and he basically like goes into his house, bandages up his hand. Goes and in, gets into his car, calls the police, reports Einar's death, and then starts driving, assumedly maybe like to a hospital or something. And uh, so I'll bring up now because I didn't earlier. Earlier in the film, when he was driving out to the country, he stopped at a gas station and the girl at the gas station was like, make sure you don't pick up any hitchhikers out here. And he's like, do you have a problem with hitchhikers out here? And she goes, oh, I don't know. I don't even have a driver's license. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say. So as he's driving away, he passes a hitchhiker and he's like all bleeding and stuff. And then for some reason he decides to stop. And so he stops his car and then the hitchhiker walks up to the car and you hear this knock on the window that is very reminiscent of the knock on the doors. There's like three knocks. Then the movie cuts to black and that's it. That's the end of the movie. Is the hitchhiker someone new? I don't know. Oh, you don't see? It doesn't show their face? No, never. So you don't really know who it is. So that's the whole movie. Okay. So my thoughts on this movie, and this is why I said, at first, I liked it because the door scene was creepy and that happened pretty early. Then it kind of dragged and I was like, maybe I don't like this. Then that video scene happened and I was like, this is pretty good. This is like creeping me the absolute fuck out. But the ending with the hitchhiker, I didn't get it. And I tried to look up to see what people thought that was. And nobody's talking about it. All people talk about is kind of like, 
was Einar dead the whole time? Was the whole like suicide conversation in the beginning, like sort of saying that he did commit suicide and then he goes out like was Gunnar just haunted by his specter for the rest of the movie? There's like these weird theories, but nobody's talking about who the fuck this hitchhiker was. I don't understand it. I mean, I would love to know what people think about it because I liked everything about this movie, but for that last scene, because it seems like almost like it was done just to kind of leave the ending with this like weird unraveled or unfinished thing. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds weird. But the rest of the movie was pretty well done. I mean, that that like seeing the video and the hand under the bed situation, that was literally one of the creepiest things I've seen in a long time. Fuck that. Like, I can I cannot even imagine. It creeps me out even just thinking about it. Mm-mm, no, shit like that terrifies me. Yes. But ultimately, it's like, I think part of the movie is supposed to be the whole mystery of, like, was Einar dead the whole time? And that's why I said, like, he finds Einar's body. I think the question of was he dead the whole time or is this series of events, like, was he killed by this guy? I think that's kind of supposed to be one of the things you're left thinking about and wondering in this movie. There is a scene where they kind of talk about, like, the creepiness of, like, meeting people. Like, at one point, Einar talks about, like, meeting somebody in town off of basically off of grinder and is like he was the only person within 50 kilometers but then he's like i did i went to go meet him but he was weird so i left i don't really know if that added anything to it but it so the story i think is supposed to be like kind of this like psychological story but also maybe a ghost story but one of the biggest things about it is it uses isolation as part of the scare and it does do well with that because the play there is this sense of like being in the middle of nowhere and darkness a lot and just kind of the fear of like when you're in the middle of nowhere, hearing other people or seeing other people is weird. Yeah, it's a problem. Yes. This movie is worth watching if you like this type of horror. If you don't like psychological horror or like this kind of like slow, long, drawn out horror, it's probably not for you. But I had never heard of this movie before, so I'm assuming that a lot of other people haven't. And I would check it out. It's called Roker or Rift. Like I said, if you have Amazon video, you can stream it on there, but you can probably find it anywhere. It's from 2017. And it's it's worth it. Also, Iceland's very pretty in it. Anyways, that's my movie. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. Okay, so this week I have a blast from my own past. Today I'm going to tell you about the 1986 novel The Magic Cottage by James Herbert. And you might be thinking, how is this part of your past, Cole? No, I wasn't around in 1986. So I actually had a copy of this when I was in high school that I got from this weird ass store that sold books for just a couple of dollars a piece, but also like paintings of Jesus on black velvet (laughs) and fairy statues. It was weird, but I also got a perfect condition first edition copy of Stephen King's Carrie there for $2 because the owner didn't know what he had. So give and take. I don't even know if you remember this. My mother has a velvet painting, but it's by a local artist, and it's Elvis. It's like it's like an Elvis New Orleans scene. Oh, okay. I don't know if you remember seeing that, but it's in the house. It's done on velvet, and it's like Elvis and a bunch of other shit. Anyways, just continue. It just that's what made me think of. Well, that's a bit different than Jesus on black velvet. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. The store was a lot. All right, it was a lot. Anyway, I read it in high school, and I didn't like it. But I wanted to read it again for this podcast because I thought, like, maybe I didn't have good enough taste back then. 
Or like, maybe I was too pretentious about my taste. Like, let's give it another go. Anyway, back to the book. Uh, The cover is pretty cool. It's the silhouette of a building that we assume is said Magic Cottage on a stormy background. It's ominous. It's intense. It's aggressively fuchsia. Of course, there's not information about who did the cover, which is rude. It doesn't look... I would never see that cover and think that it's a horror novel. I would think that it's like a fantasy thing or something. Or like a romance. The magic of love and the cottage in the countryside. Well, the magic cottage just makes me think. Well, first of all, the word cottage always makes me think of cottage cheese. But second of all, the magic cottage just sounds like it's going to be like a Hansel and Gretel situation. Yeah. God, remember Gretel and Hansel? That movie, that the preview looked so good but then the movie was real bad it was i i mean i obviously i would never talk about it on this because we've both seen it and that's usually not what i do but that movie was such a disappointment it had so much potential yeah anyway uh so the blurb is a lot let's just jump right in grammary which is what the cottage is called. Because you know all those cutesy little English countryside houses all have names. Mm -hmm. It's like a fairy tale. A lovely rustic bungalow. First of all, lie. Cottages and bungalows are two different structure types. (laughs) Our house is a cottage, for example. Anyway. A lovely rustic bungalow at the edge of a forest. Thoroughly charming. A red tile roof and ramshackle white picket fence. For Mike and Midge, yes, her name is Midge. I think it's short for Margaret. Grammarie is a dream house, idyllic, even enchanted. Then everything changes. Eerie incidents, inexplicable attacks, ghostly visitations are set in motion. Mike senses the presence of an awesome power, black magic in all its hellish guises. Walls appear to be moving closer and closer as if to grasp Mike in the cold grip of death while unstoppable slithering evil prepares to reclaim the cottage in the name of all that is twisted, unearthly, and foul. And an ideal storybook cottage becomes a place where horror dwells and the blood runs cold. Mm. So it's real estate horror. Pretty much. Sort of. Yeah, technically. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound groundbreaking or anything sounds okay i do do like the term black magic we'll get to my issues with it black magic magic with a k magic with a k the secret ron (laughs) burn is that you (laughs) all right so let's dive right in here obviously our two characters are mike and midge mike is a musician and he mainly does gigs playing like the music for touring artists okay yeah but also does some music writing himself. Honestly, he's kind of a douche. If I remember correctly, he describes himself as like handsome despite having let himself go. But he also wants you to know that he is very choosy. And he chose Midge because she's so smoking hot. And how is Midge so smoking hot, you ask? She's so small. She's so pixie-like. She's so slender. She's so young-looking. So childlike-looking. I'm not kidding. There's so many descriptions of her, like, in child terms. It's upsetting. But seriously, every time Midge's beauty is described, which is not uncommon, the author really wants you to know just how hot she is. 
Like, you need to understand just how hot she is. But every single time, it's always like, she looks so young. So young. So young. It's creepy. I don't like it. Mitch herself is an illustrator. She mainly does children's picture books, but she also does like ad campaigns and stuff for children's companies, like toy companies and stuff like that. Otherwise, because this is a horror novel from the 80s, Midge is a pretty flat manic pixie dream girl. She's basically a sexual object with a speaking part. And she is only as deep as Mike can get inside of her vagina, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is probably not very. Sexual objects with speaking parts sounds good. What if somebody designed a line of like sex toys that had like voiceovers? Like, you know how like they design like stuffed animals, stuff that you like you push them and they say things. Wouldn't that be so funny? Like, (laughs) like vibrators that like you push in and like has like a little like. A little quip or something. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary folks, this is my husband. <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of, Or it played, like, little, like, snippets of songs. Oh, like the toothbrushes that play music? Yes, so you know that's exactly... What, that's exactly what I was thinking, is the toothbrushes that play music. Somebody. Just have a little one that you're, like, click, and it's like, here I am. No. Rock you like a hurricane. No, it yeah. just please stop. No, it's time to stop. <laughs> but that would be so fitting. Okay, anyways, continue. Uh, Midge really wants to move out of London and into the country because, like, she was a country girl when she was little, and he just doesn't understand the beauty and wonder and life-changing magic of living in the country. Let me change your life with this song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know I'm like a city person, but sometimes I think that being in the country could be fun. I would like to live in the country later on in my life. Like, I would like to live, continue living in the city for a while. But I'm thinking once I'm in, like, late 40s or so, I might want to move to, like, a more isolated place and have several large dogs, a pig, and a herd of cats. Yes. I've heard this many times. Yes. I just want... I want an amount of dog that on a cold night I can sit in the couch and immediately just be enveloped in warm love. (laughs) So I need at least three. Large ones. Mastiffs, preferably. I do like Mastiffs. I mean, I grew up with Newfoundlands. Very similar. Maybe a Great Dane. Great Dane is a lot of dog. I know. I could ride him into town. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, so she wants to move out to the country and Mike knows that she's so far out of his league that they are playing completely different sports. So he's on board. Mysteriously, the listing for this house stands out and it's the only one that Midge is interested in. So they go and it's in real shitty condition. We're talking mold, wire damage, cracked walls. There is a massive crack in the lintel over the stove that makes the whole wall look like it's going to come down on you when you're looking in the soup pot. But she talks Mike into getting it anyway. And mysteriously, when the crew goes out to fix it, the condition isn't nearly as bad as they've been told. Um... There is in the house this like massive round room full of windows and light and cheer and energy and whatever. Uh, And when they first walk into it, Mike has this weird experience where he's dazzled and dazed. And he just decides that it's residual psychedelics in his system from his wilder years. Yeah, that's definitely not a thing. Actually, 
um, hallucinogens do get stored in spinal fluid and sometimes you can have like residual flashes. LSD oh, I... does it. I know a lot of people have done a lot of LSD. I don't know. That sounds a little weird. But I also like that that's his go-to excuse for that. It's like, it's a weird plot device between the two of them. In his like big music days, he did a lot of drugs. And she was like, if you want to be with me, you need to stop doing drugs. Mm. Let me change your life with a song. And he does. Just a gentle listener. I hate the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. With such a deep intensity that it's very easy to get me to just rant about it. Anyway, there are a few somewhat pertinent points here before we have an interlude that kind of splits the story in half. So we have vaguely hinted to us that Midge is dealing with the trauma of her parents' deaths. Apparently after her father died, her mother was very depressed And one day as Midge was leaving from visiting her mother, she felt that something was especially off, but she just kind of shrugs it off. And that night her mother kills herself. And so Midge feels a great deal of guilt about that. It's pertinent. I promise. Sure. Uh, We also learned that the previous owner, Flora Chaldine, I believe is how you would say her last name, was a bit of a healer, but also like a hermit. And she died alone in the house sitting at her kitchen table with a moldy cup of tea beside her, which gentle listener. (laughs) Max is laughing because he knows what I'm about to say. I have left out cups of tea in my messier days when I was not obsessively tidy in an attempt to feel like I have control over my life. And they molded in like two days. When I tried to get a cup of tea to mold for our promo post this week, it wouldn't fucking work. I've tried like three different cups of tea. I think those teacups were literally just trying to spite you. I hate it. (laughs) I hate it so much. Anyway, then after that, we, as the reader, are treated to several chapters of them settling in. And it's a lot of, like, them having really amazing sex and then doing really cutesy, like, country cottagecore chores. That's cute. And these are interspersed with, like, a couple of creepy things. Like, Mike keeps seeing a shadowy figure. Again, we're in, like, the middle of nowhere, like your story. One day while hiking through the woods, they see a gray mansion that creeps them out. The attic is full of bats. Which, I like bats, but whatever. Bats are so fucking cute, though. They're so adorable. They eat watermelon. The watermelon video kills me (laughs) every time. I love it. Otherwise, it's really... Well, it's boring. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. Sorry. There is also a weirdly domesticated squirrel that they have named Rumbo. Don't know why. Mike says he looks like a Rumbo. Literally, that's what Mike says. Okay. I mean, I name things weird things sometimes. And weirdly enough, squirrels actually can be domesticated. I see people sometimes on Instagram with domesticated squirrels. It looks weird to me, but I don't know. They're all, they're, squirrels are really twitchy. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But, like, when they open the door to let in the fresh morning air, Rumbo comes inside every day, like, and just hangs out in their house. He's pretty cool. (laughs) Then everything goes to shit when the cultists show up. Cultists ruin everything. (laughs) And now, Max, I will go ahead and just prompt you because I know that there are a few people out there who noticed when you made a vague hint to it last time. Tell us about your cult experience (laughs) real quick, please. Um, (laughs) 
I mean, I, I, I can talk about it, and I actually have no discomfort in talking about it, but I also don't want to go on forever. And I do not... I thought about it because I knew you were going to ask me about it. I don't necessarily know that I want to say exactly what I was in because there's kind of this contention among a lot of people about, is this really a cult? Is this not a cult? Although, to be honest, it's kind of like the people who are in it say no, and the people who are not in it say yes, most likely. And then the neutral people sometimes will be like the the most neutral thing I thing I saw about it because I actually looked up to see what people were actually saying about it now because I wasn't even sure if it still existed. I've kind of separated myself from that. And basically people were like one like one person was like I don't necessarily know if it qualifies as a cult because it's not doing anything illegal, but it definitely uses cult-like psychological tactics. And I was like, "Well, how is it not a cult? Cults aren't necessarily illegal." But anyways, um, so without saying what it was, I'll just say briefly that like my parents kind of felt, well, I say my parents, my father, my mother was the one who was like super into the idea, but she actually never did go and like go to any of their sort of seminars or forums or, um, sessions or anything like that. But my father did, my mom had just heard about all this stuff. And so it was like, my father did, it costs thousands of dollars to go to these things and it's like these seminars and then when I was a kid my dad kind of fell into it so much that he sent me and my two older brothers I have three brothers but my younger brother he deemed was too young for it I was only like 14 at the time and so he sent us to this thing to go to these seminars and so we did it's like I don't want to like go into too much but I will say that basically we had to like go to these like mandatory seminars, sit in a room. We weren't allowed to take bathroom breaks at, uh, except at designated times. We could not have any outside entertainment. So no phones. We couldn't take notes. We couldn't write anything. We literally, it's like you had to pay attention to what you were being told. You had to listen and participate. We were giving, we were given homework to do, which by homework, I mean like, it was like weird shit. Like, honestly, it was like, Making amends with people you've wronged, but also, like, cutting off ties with people who, like, disagree with what you're doing. It was, like, weird. But I was a very sassy 14-year-old goth kid, and I was not into it because when I showed up to it, first of all, I didn't like the place to begin with because they had literally just fleeced my parents for thousands of dollars. And I knew this. So I had done all this research and found out that this organization had a lot of roots in sort of, like, Scientology, but they were, like, kicked out of Scientology or something yikes yeah and I don't want to go too much into their philosophies or anything like that because it's just it's just not worth it but ultimately I would like ask questions about like can you explain your links to like this person and his like role in this in the church of Scientology like things like that and the people just started getting more and more upset with me and they told me that I was hindering everyone else's progress and he tried to sort of like ostracize me with the group because that's kind of what you do with that mentality is basically talk about how this wasn't going to work for me because I was refusing to accept it and like all this shit and how like I was hurting other people from from changing their lives. All in all, at the end of the day, I ended up being kicked out. But I will say this. So my oldest brother actually kind of fell a little bit into it. And this is when I was like, how can you people not see that this is a problem? At the so when you finished your first like weekend full weekend session of everything, 
which I mean, we had to stay in a hotel with only like these people. Like, I mean, it was, it was nuts. But when you finish your first weekend session, you have a graduation ceremony. And I remember them talking to my older brother at the graduation ceremony and basically being like, so you're going to sign up for our next courses. Right. And he was like, oh, I don't really have that money because I mean, it was like a couple grand to do that. And I remember them saying, if I told you that I had a brand new like Porsche out in the parking lot and it was only going to cost you $2,000, you would be able to come up with that money, right? And he's like, well, of course I would. That would be insane. And he's like, so you can get the money if you choose to. So you should just find a way to get the money to sign up for these things. And I think that's actually when my brother was like, hold up. This is weird. Ultimately, at the end of the day, to be honest, my... And, like, I don't think my parents listened to this, which is probably good because they did actually. I think my dad still, for a while after, was still involved in this organization and eventually kind of had a falling out because I, I don't know. It's weird because I do think that it was very negative. This has gone on for so long. I didn't mean to talk about it this long, but it is hard when you're people seeking an answer and somebody claims to have the answer. Sometimes I think it's hard to see that you're just being completely like controlled and like completely conned and tricked. And I think that that's what was happening is a lot of these people, because they would make you share these super traumatic events in your life. Like you'd have to stand up in front of this like group of 50 people and like talk about like serious trauma. And I think it's taking vulnerable people and making them feel like this is the only way out of their sort of trauma. And this is what's going to help them. And on one hand, I'm like, well, I guess if it helps them, it's okay. But on the other hand, I'm like, I don't think that this is a healthy way to be dealing with this. And I mean, it. I could tell more stories in death, but I'm, I'm just not going to do that. But anyways, if people are wondering, if you really want to know exactly the organization, you can message me and I'll talk to you about it. I just don't want to like call people out because also I don't know how fucking crazy these people are at this point or if somebody like rats me out and then I'm in like Scientology has like people fucking kidnapped and killed. I'm not or. Just kidding. They're they're great. Please don't kidnap and kill me. Anyway, that's basically a very long version of the short version, to be honest, of my time in that cult. But like I said, I was a kid, so it wasn't like I chose to be in it. And ultimately, I was kicked out because I was like literally a sassy 13-year-old, 14-year-old who just like defied authority. So like they're trying to exert authority over me was very unsuccessful. I'll point that out. But I mean, we had to like, we we could only eat together. Like there was no going out. Like we couldn't leave. Like we ate together. We woke up exactly when they said. When it was over, we had to like go to bed. There was no going out at night. There was no extracurriculars. It was literally like you had to be with this group 100% of the time. So yeah. We didn't have a uniform or anything cool like that. It was just like, you know. Oh, I almost made a real dark joke. <laughs> I was going to say no Kool-Aid brunches. (laughs) No. It's funny because I think when people think cults, they only think of things like Jim Jones or even like the Manson family and things like that. Those are notorious ones because they killed people. But there are a ton of cults out there. And they just are allowed to operate because they're not killing people. Yeah. But a cult is really more about like a mindset and brainwashing people and getting them to follow you. And I, to be honest, think that like tricking hundreds, thousands of people even into like 
funneling all their money into you because you're like spouting off this like garbage psychology is just as well not just as damaging as killing somebody that would be a crazy thing to say but is still very much so cult-like and is very much so something that probably should be looked into i don't know and of course there's like other types of cults too like the sex ones and shit like that but ours was not like that that i'm aware of i mean i was 14 what the fuck what i know anyways continue cultists great back to the story i'm going to try and pick up the pace here because the book kind of putters along to go through the interactions with the cultists so i'm kind of mashing it all together but picture this over the course of like i don't know the cultists first show up like 100 pages in and it's like an almost 500 page book Mm. so it putters about a while uh so three cultists show up one day to say hello and they don't like start off by saying that they're in a cult they just talk about where they live which shocker it's the gray mansion oh my god so surprised (laughs) generally to be honest the first rule of being in a cult is you do not mention that you're in a cult oh it gets even more hilarious in a minute but they do say a lot of things like there's more than just the three of us and say you'll come and visit we'll be sure to make you feel most welcome and a lot of like my friending like you know yada 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 my friend oh to try and like build that fake rapport sure and do you want to know the only time i call someone my friend when it's a child at work that i can't remember their name so i am instantly suspicious if someone says my friend unless it's like an armenian deli worker my friend okay yes but there are exceptions (laughs) to everything on a later visit we learned that they are part of the temple of synergists which I googled. I don't think it's a real cult. If it is, y'all are great. Please don't come kidnap me. And they believe that the human spirit can combine with the divine and grant you powers. But let me tell you, if you have to describe your group by starting with the sentence, first of all, we're not at all a crackpot religion like everyone says. (laughs) That's exactly what you are. (laughs) And you need to reevaluate yourself. (laughs) Me thinks that does protest. Too much. <laughs> uh, it's pretty standard cult shit. When you join, you have to give them everything you own. Uh-huh. Stuff like that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Their leader is named... Brace yourself. Are you braced? I'm braced. You're not braced enough. Eldritch Mycroft. Oh. Okay. That That's definitely a fake name. Yep. Uh, over the next way too many pages, the cottage starts to fall into disrepair again. And Midge starts to get really interested in the Temple of Synergists because they claim that they can use their powers to help her contact her parents for closure. Hmm. Then one day, Midge is off running errands and Mike hears weird sounds in his studios and he opens and his guitars are like warping on their own. Um, I think it's weirdly described. Okay. Then he hears noises in the attic. So he goes up there and there's like tons of bats, like more than usual. And then one of the bats gives birth in like a page long, horrifyingly graphic scene. And Mike whips away to run back downstairs. And in doing so, as his flashlight goes across the roof of the attic, sees that dozens of bats are giving birth all at once. It's a little disturbing. It's like the most disturbing scene in the book. (laughs) 
at this point, he gets a call from Val, who is Midge's manager, who we've met several times up until this point. I'm not going to talk about her too much. She is a great businesswoman. But Herbert is super, super homophobic in how he writes her and even makes a lot of like transphobic comments because she presents more masculine. It's gross and it annoyed me. Ah. But Val had this moment of realization thinking about the cottage and how it looked familiar. And it turns out that Midge drew it in a children's book years and years ago. Okay. Which is whatever. Like it was cool. It was a fun little like twist. So Mike suddenly feels like she's at the temple and he decides that he's going to dash over there. And that's where it gets weird. Er. So there, it, it gets interesting from here. So once he gets to the, the temple, the gray mansion, Mycroft takes him and Midge into, and Midge was already there, like Mike thought, into this, it's a pyramid-shaped room. And it's pitch black, but with like beams of light in it. And there's a lot of incense. And Mycroft is like, this helps me channel energy. Of course, there is a mirror to it underneath us. So it looks like, I don't know, like a plumb bob from The Sims. The little thing that floats above their head. Yeah, yeah. Then he does his whole like villainous, look how clever I am. This is my plan. Apparently, the cottage is built over a power nexus. And he wants the power. So he conjures illusions to try and frighten them. But Mike kind of pushes through the illusion. And he thinks that Midge is somehow connected to the power of the cottage. So they flee to the cottage. But, oh no, the house is now covered in bats. Lots of bat birth. (laughs) Just literally covered. Like it's completely covered in bats. So Mike and Midge cover their heads and they like break in and duck in. And right inside on the threshold is Rumbo and the bats have killed him. Oh no, poor Rumbo. It's very sad. So as they're laying Rumbo on the table and mourning him, Mycroft shows up because shock, shock, he figured out where they were running. And he makes the bats attack them. Don't really know how. And then the bats stop, which is weird. Not really explained. It ju- they just stop at the end of a chapter. And then Mycroft starts talking again. He talks a lot. But Midge is like, I can do this. I have the power. And we are treated to like a full chapter of her like doing these like motions of gathering her power together. And then nothing happens. <laughs> It was so good. So, this so okay. This is my thing. So, Mycroft wants the cottage. So, it's this whole thing that he's like, this couple that bought the cottage just bought it faster than me, and now I need to scare them away so I can get the cottage. Oh, I forgot. When Flora died, a stipulation in her will was that the cottage could not be sold to anyone with a connection to the temple. Oh, okay forgot about that i didn't think you would ask and i thought it was kind of a whatever well it just seemed like a plot hole because i was like so he just wants this building why didn't he just fucking buy it in the first place yeah okay and why is it that midge does not have her power well thankfully flora's ghost shows up to tell us everything apparently the cottage chooses a guardian 
to guard the power. And as long as the guardian lives there, the property flourishes. And the only reason it started to deteriorate was because they had invited the cultists in. And so their like malevolence started to poison the property. Okay. Then she says that it didn't work for Midge because Mike, the douchebag white dude, was the chosen one the whole time. <laughs> of course he was. Oh, oh, Mike. Things wrap up pretty fast. Uh, Mycroft summons an eldritch terror. Mike defeats it in a psychic battle, and it takes Mycroft with it as it vanishes. This all happens in like a page and a half. Then the cottage starts to rumble and crumble, and everyone flees. But at the end of the last chapter, Mike runs back just as the chapter is closing. Good thing we have an epilogue to tell us that the cottage imploded, but Mike ran back because as they were fleeing, he saw Rumbo lift his head, so everyone lives happily ever after. The end. And mediocre white men save the day again. Yay! But he's choosy. Remember, he's choosy. Those are his, that's his term for it. He's choosy. That's why he's with Midge, because she's hot enough to be with him. He's choosy. Yeah. I don't to be honest, that story doesn't sound that bad to me. But I mean there's some dumb choices in it for sure. There are dumb choices. There's a lot of like boring puttering back and forth. Yeah. I don't know. It was just and I I cut out like several things that happened in the story for my script because it would have just it's like a five hundred page book. It would have been too long. Yeah. No, okay. I actually am going to give this two out of five pyramid rooms. The pacing was really weird. It was normal at first. Then it got really slow. And then it was like a batshit broken down roller coaster. At the end. Hmm. I also don't really know what Herbert was going for here. Was this real estate horror? Was it cult horror? Is the house cursed? Is it a ghost story? Is it eldritch horror? Is it swarm horror with the bats? The book is having an identity crisis. I needed him to pick something and stick with it, but we jumped around. Yeah. I feel like there's easier ways to get somebody out of a house, especially if you're like a cult. Like conjuring dark energies, that I don't know, that seems like a real roundabout way to get things done. It seems like a lot of work. Yeah. Why not just like start playing really loud music all the time? Anyways, so if you were in the magic cottage, would you get killed? I'm going to say no. Um, No one really dies except for Flora beforehand, obviously. And it's not really determined if she was killed by the cult. Like, Mycroft frightened her to death with illusions. Or if she just, like, died of old age because she was old. And then Mycroft dies because the Eldritch Terror consumes him. Oh, yeah. they'll, They'll do that for you. But otherwise, uh, no one really dies. I think I'd be fine. Would you die in Rift? Hmm. I don't think so. Because you wouldn't drive out to the fucking country at three o'clock in the morning because your ex called you. Well, I definitely wouldn't do that. And to be honest, even if I were out there, the first night that there was the knocking on the door and nobody was there would be the last night I spent in that fucking place. Yep. Nope. Done. Goodbye. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's... No. No, thank you. 
All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us whatever you want, questions or comments or suggestions. Uh, if you want to talk about being in cult, I can talk to you about that. It's funny because I joke about it now. It was actually a very traumatic experience for me when I was younger, but it was so long ago at this point. I don't care about it. And I will gladly discuss it with you. And you can do that by just emailing us at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.